You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to today's show. Um, our, uh, can I restart that? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode one of a Life in Ruins podcast. Today, we three cowboys of science will be hosting our first guest, Dr. Spencer Pelton, PhD, RPA, arguably the cowboy of science. Spencer is one of the most talented, accomplished, and brilliant archaeologists in the country. The dude has over a dozen publications and literally got his PhD last year. Anyone that knows Spencer will tell you that he's one of the most enjoyable people to be around and was a mentor to a lot of us during our time at the University of Wyoming. Spencer's research varies from lithic technology, hunter-gatherer ecology, to human evolution, and his dissertation focused on hominid thermal regulation. The list of his accomplishments would be too much to talk about in one podcast, so we'll let his smooth, Johnny Cash-like drawl tell you his life story. Welcome to today's show. I'm Carlton Gover. I'm being joined today by David Ian Howe and Connor Yonan. And today's guest is Dr. Spencer Pelton. Uh, Dr. Pelton is currently the senior archaeologist for Transcon Environmental Incorporated, and is currently running several field research positions, such as a field director for the Powers II Paleo Indian Ochre Mine and reinvestigations of the Sister Seal Paleo Indian site. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Spencer. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Really flattered that you asked me to come on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're our first guest. Yeah, it's a great honor. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Of course. So like just going into what we wanted to talk about today with you, Dr. Pelton, um, we just had a couple of quick questions just to get our guests acquainted with your background. So what got you into archaeology? I mean, I mean, that's that's a pretty uh, basic question. Uh, I think I started uh, the way a lot of people do is walking plowed fields in Tennessee. My dad looking for flakes, um, something that's completely out of bounds for me these days. But back when I was you know, five, six years old, it was just good fun on these big rivers in Tennessee doing that. I uh, always liked digging in the dirt, always liked old stuff. And uh, I kind of lost it for a while. But then once I got to, to college, I realized that you could actually do it for a living. So I kind of came back around to it and have stuck with it ever since. Cool. Awesome. And uh, you've been around the sciences the majority of your life through uh, your dad, right? Correct. My dad's a uh, retired wildlife biologist. He worked for the University of Tennessee pretty much his entire career. And he's uh, he's really into black bears, but does also have some uh, some bear research projects and, and projects on other species throughout the world. So yeah, I grew up doing some den work with, with his projects, which involves going into black bear dens and uh, immob immobilizing them. And that's not like in your house, right? No, no, this is, in, this is <laughs> okay, primarily in the, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, uh, close to where I'm from in East Tennessee. I grew up around the sciences and having a pretty strong appreciation for the sciences. Uh, my uncle is also a biologist and my grandfather is an engineer. And so all that kind of combined to really instill a pretty healthy respect for the sciences from a pretty early age. I can imagine. I remember when I first got to University of Wyoming, which is where all of us, the host, met you. Um, one of the first memories I have, I believe it was uh, another PhD student at the University of Wyoming that showed me a very adorable photo of you with a couple black bear cubs when you were younger. 
And in what magazine or publication was that in? Yeah, I was, uh, <laughs> I was had my 15 minutes of fame pretty early in life. I think I guess it's coming back around now with this podcast. So, huh? but yeah, I was in uh, National Geographic World magazine when I was I think 11 years old. I was <laughs> made the cover. I didn't make the main cover. That was that. Uh, distinction belonged to a sea turtle, if I recall. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't get it. Like a little little bubble in the bottom right corner, and there's a there's a whole article about it. my life with bears. I think it was called. Um, sea turtles and, get all the glory, dude. I know <laughs> the damn sea turtles. <laughs> you get them involved, they're just going to steal the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, sea turtles! So you went to you did your undergrad at the University of Tennessee. Is that correct? Actually, no, I, I got a yeah, Middle Tennessee State University. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't have a whole lot of choice of uh, my undergrad, I guess, coming out of it. I didn't want to go all the way to Memphis, and I wanted to get a little further away than Knoxville. So I, I picked the geographic center of Tennessee. But you went to Murfreesboro. Right, Middle Tennessee State University, <laughs> Murfreesboro. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of good yeah, time. Yeah, it was the one that, uh, you know, was free and uh, just far enough away from home that felt like I was actually going somewhere. So yeah. that's where I ended up. Had a good time there. And uh, actually has a really, really strong uh, art anthropology department. Yeah. Did you do any uh, field work when you were there as part of your undergrad experience? You know, I didn't really do a whole lot of field work through the university uh, at, that, at that time. My first field work experience was with the, the Park Service. Uh, and that was, that was done as part of a Student Conservation Association internship. Uh, that I actually did so that I could uh, get credit for my field school through the university. So I, I never took a field school in my undergrad, actually. It was, it was all through that internship that I got credit for that. What was your favorite part about Murfreesboro? I'm kind of hung up on it. <laughs> uh, my favorite part going into it, what it, was, it wasn't Sevierville anymore. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I think Murfreesboro has a surprisingly good music scene. Yeah. And that was really probably my my favorite part about it. Uh, it has a really strong recording industry program there that kind of sends a lot of people to Nashville. And that's that's actually what I uh, started doing at Middle Tennessee State. I was started university there as a recording industry major. Oh, wow. Well, for those of you who are new to us and don't know Spencer, Spencer's actually a really talented musician, has a wonderful voice, plays guitar really well. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. That's why you went to... Uh, school for that thanks david well yeah it's uh it ends up having a you know there's a lot of great musicians get attracted to this little this little town that is pretty unremarkable in most ways but uh you end up having a lot of really great bands and a pretty good music scene in that town yeah and you're like 20 minutes down the road from nashville so right, right. yeah so what happened once you once you graduated what was your uh your goal in life. Um, I mean, I feel like we all have different experiences with what happens after your undergraduate degree, you know? So, you know, what, 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 where did your, uh, where did your path go? No, that's a good question. So I, I had fostered this relationship with the park service over two different seasons, uh, working for them during my undergrad. Uh, first season, like I said, I was an intern. Second season, they brought me back as a, a seasonal GS five arc tech. Uh, so I graduated in, uh, in a December of 08, I basically spent the next four months just drinking a lot of beer and playing pool <laughs> and trying to find a job. Uh, <laughs> and I got pretty good at both. And eventually um, the BLM 
called me back, I think in, in late April of, of 2009. And I, I just, I don't know if you guys have put in for these jobs before, but a lot of the, the BLM jobs are just, uh, uh, work for the BLM in nine Western States. <laughs> and you just kind of put your name in a hat and you just get a call back one day. And, uh, it ended up being this, this BLM field office, the Eagle Lake field office in Susanville, California. And, uh, I interviewed for that in late April and then picked up in, in early May and, and moved out to Northern California. And I, I spent the next four years working for them during the summers. So really when I, when I came out of my undergrad, I was, I was pretty dead set on a career with, with the, uh, with the federal government, uh, as a federal archeologist and, and kind of wanted to make my way up through the ranks and maybe take on some resource management tasks or some, or something like that. So at that point, uh, a career in archaeology was mainly focused on on the federal sector. Yeah, and you had told me at one point that you you had gone out there for um or like the area you were working was like one of the more like beautiful areas of California you'd experienced, right? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's certainly not the part of California you think of when you get all excited about moving to California because <laughs> yeah. it's uh yeah it's not it's not surfing and wine country. It's very much like high desert. It's kind of where the, the Great Basin meets the Sierras, meets the Cascades. It's this really, really gorgeous remote sure. location. Still the most rural place I've, I've ever lived, in, including now in, in Douglas, Wyoming. But it's, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. <laughs> I, I learned a lot working out there. I mean, it was, it was my first experience in Western archaeology, which is ultimately what has come to, to, to be my passion. So, uh, I, yeah, really value my time there. I mean, it's super interesting to see here that you're like focusing on kind of government jobs out of, you know, undergrad. I don't know how many people are like, hmm, I just finished my undergrad. Let's go work for the government, at least in like in our profession. I kind of was just staring off the edge of a cliff like, what what now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had, I had a little bit of a leg up. My mom works for the park service. And so she really kind of uh, set me up on that path early on. And yeah. I was at least aware that it was like pretty secure sort of job path to go down coming out of my undergrad and, and something that'd be worth pursuing. So what made you choose to go uh, get your master's at Colorado state? Yeah, initially it was, uh, uh, I, I was offered a, pr a promotion through the BLM. If I got my master's, I, uh, Colorado state in particular, I had some connections to Colorado and I started looking at programs there that I could afford. And, um, I landed on Colorado State University because I, I found a couple names there. Uh, Jason LaBelle, who ended up being my advisor. And uh, yeah, it really interested me. So I want to say I worked for I worked for the BLM for like six months, had a winter off, did nothing, basically worked another summer. And then that that fall of 20, I guess, 10, I started my master's there at CSU. And yeah, for the next two or three years I uh, of that program, I live this kind of double life where I uh, drive back to California every summer, work for the BLM. And then I come back and work on my master's work uh, during the school year and just kind of go back and forth like that for, for a couple of three years. That's quite the transition. Cause uh, if you haven't been to Fort Collins, it's not very small and quiet <laughs> kind of the, it's not the inverse of the, the rural life. But it's oh, for sure. It was, it was definitely a double, a double life. It was uh yeah, going back and forth between. I, I started calling Fort Collins the Millennial Shangri-La. It's got like all the cool restaurants and the breweries, the, the cute downtown. I'm actually there right now. 
four cones in a hotel. But and but then yeah, Susanville's kind of the opposite of that. It's a prison town in the high desert of California with uh, very little amenities to speak of. But uh, it, I, it suited me. I liked it. I liked I liked kind of having my foot in both worlds there for a little while. Well, uh, speaking of millennials, isn't that where you met uh, Connor? In, uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Connor was uh, Connor was one of my first employees, I guess. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You were also, um, I don't know if you remember this, you were also my TA for uh, Seibold's class, his geography oh, class. Okay. So I was like, <laughs> he really doesn't remember. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I was sitting in the back like a little weirdo. So. There's a lot of people in those intro classes. <laughs> well, you had like, we had like three TAs or something, right? It was yeah. Yeah, absurd. No, Jason LaBelle ended up handing me a, a survey of some, some public lands or no, some county lands uh, just south of Fort Collins. And we did a archaeology survey out there and Connor was, was uh, one of the crew members on that. If I, if I recall, that was a good time. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah, it was a. There wasn't a lot there, but it was, it was pretty. <laughs> sure, it was pretty. There was a lot of elk out there. It was, yeah. yeah, it was fun. Nice. Actually, just random thought. I was uh, going through, uh, just just randomly looking around, and apparently they found uh, some mammoth remains buried deep when they were doing some of the testing for that reservoir that I had no idea about. You know, I actually heard about that with the paleontologist that worked on that is, is now doing some subcontracting for the company I work for. And he, he told me about that yeah, <laughs> wow. small world. Yeah, absolutely. So when you um, came to CSU, did you have an idea for your what you were going to do for your master's or did you just kind of come in blank slate hoping, hoping to no, find No, I, I had no idea, really. Uh, I, I'd say the one skill that kind of set me apart from other folks was that I, I was really good at GIS. And so I wanted to do something with like a geospatial component to it. Um, actually, what my minor is, my undergrad was in, a, in GIS. And it, if I can recommend anything for people's careers in archaeology, it's that you learn how to use that software because it kind of makes you the most popular guy in the room in some of these like federal offices and CRM firms and stuff if you have a good grasp of that. So, yeah, I, I had very vague sense of it. I, I was excited and, you know, I could talk and had ideas. And I think Jason LaBelle really, uh, really respected that and was kind enough to bring me on as his student. So, uh, yeah, I'd say a combination of having some GIS skills and just having kind of an innate curiosity for, for the discipline. Some ideas were the two things that I had going for me going into a master's program. But other than that, I was I was pretty clueless. I had very few research skills. I really didn't know how to use Microsoft Excel at all, which is a pretty valuable thing to know if you're dealing with data of any kind. Oh yeah. I, I was green. I was really green. That's what talks for. And if I can echo anything Spencer says is that uh, the only reason I have a job in CRM right now is because I did a little bit of GIS for my thesis. So learn it. It's a very <laughs> valuable. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us about your master's thesis research. It had something to do with, uh, you know what, just tell us about it. <laughs> It yeah, was titled Groundstone Lithic Technology of Indian Peaks, Colorado, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, yeah. There's this weird phenomenon in the Front Range of Colorado where the the Alpine country is just full of archaeological sites, and that that was really unknown to me before I came to Colorado. And uh, the the most impressive of those archaeological sites are these big game drives, which I ended up I ended up researching them as well. I have a paper on that with Jason LaBelle. But there's also this weird thing where there's there's groundstone tools everywhere, things that you use to process plants, grind plants up. And uh, the alpine tundra is not really the type of place that you 
associate with really rich floral resources. And so I got really uh, intrigued by the presence of these tools all throughout the front range. I think it was 40% of the sites have ground stone up there, which is a really large number. And some sites have a ton of it on there. So I wrote a, I wrote a thesis trying to explain why one might uh, carry these ground stone tools up from the front range to these alpine sites. That's the other thing that all the ground stone tools that they're carried uh, at least 20 kilometers uphill to, to get to these sites. Sounds like a uh, rocky predicament. <laughs> I think, I think like most people, they, they kind of like cringe when they go back and look at their master's thesis. And I, I do the same, but the one thing I can't say about it is uh, <laughs> I, I was able to, ask some questions and kind of throw some hypotheses out and, and try to use data to answer those. And uh, I, I feel proud that I kind of got to that point of scientific inquiry by the, by the time I wrote my master's thesis, as, as opposed to just more of kind of a descriptive, descriptive master's thesis where you, you know, d- dig a few shovel tests and, and describe what came out of them. Gotcha. Well, do you have any uh, advice for people thinking about um, starting their master's or, or uh, thinking about graduate school in general? Always have it paid for by somebody else. There's no, there's no point going into debt. I'd say if you, if you're just going into a graduate program because you don't know what else to do, don't do it. Um, especially if you got to take out student loans to finance it. I'm pretty pragmatic about a lot of this stuff. And so that, that's really my first piece of advice. Uh, as far as, which programs they get into or, or um, you know, what skills you need to foster before you go into one. It's kind of conditional upon uh, your own interests and, and where you want to go with your career. I, I would certainly say that learning how to, to read critically and quickly and like skim academic literature and really digest it quickly is, is probably the most valuable skill that you're going to need when you go into a graduate program, uh, as well as some basic understanding of you know, descriptive statistics and Excel and how to use PowerPoint, all, all the basic stuff that you kind of pick up as you go along. But if you have, if you have some of those skills going into it, then uh, it definitely gives you a leg up. No, no deep philosophical insights into it though, other than like, don't do it unless you have to. I mean, it's, uh, it's no use kind of spinning your wheels, um, paying more student loans than, than you already do. And, and ending up with something that you don't really know what to do with. So if it's not going to advance your career at all, then I, I wouldn't suggest doing it. Well, sounds good. Well, uh, on that little nugget of information, we're going to go ahead and take our first break. We're going to be back in a moment uh, to continue our conversation with Dr. Pelton, talk about uh, his doctoral research and some of our experiences with him at the University of Wyoming. Cool. And welcome back to episode one of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are uh, about to continue our conversation with Dr. Spencer Pelton. Um, And for this segment, uh, Dr. Pelton, we just want to kind of talk to you about your experiences as a doctoral student at the University of Wyoming and just kind of talk about experiences personally that we have um, with you. Um, Connor met you originally at CSU, Colorado State University, and me and uh, David met you at the University of Wyoming. So why did you choose Wyoming um, to begin with? It's a great program. Uh, that's pretty, a pretty simple answer. But I also kind of fell in love with the, the plains and Rocky Mountains when I was down at Colorado State uh, working with Jason LaBelle. And so I, I knew I wanted to do something, some archaeology in the plains and Rocky Mountains and continue doing research in that region. And, uh, it, you know, when he, when he comes down to it, you start looking at programs, there's not a whole lot of choices there. Uh, there's you know, CU, maybe University of New Mexico, something in Utah or Montana. But I, I ultimately decided Wyoming because 
I, th- I thought the faculty did really interesting research and I had met them before and, and really enjoyed being around them. And I, I'm talking about Bob Kelly, Todd Servell, Marcel Kornfeld, Mary Lou Larson, all, all the folks that, that are there at Wyoming that, that do Plains and Rocky Mountains archaeology. I should also, uh, you can't pass by George Frizen being still around the department. He's, he's still in there as much as possible. Uh, so all, all those things together, it made it a pretty logical choice in my mind. And uh, so I went up and visited with Todd uh, in the fall of uh, 2012, I guess. And, and one thing led to another, and I spent the next five years there. Gotcha. And I, this is an absolutely pertinent question, but do you have a Bob Kelly impression? <laughs> Carlton. <laughs> Can you turn the music down, please? <laughs> I guess that's it. I don't know. I've never tried that one before, but something like that. Oh my gosh, fair enough. So you started, when did you start uh, your doctorate program at Wyoming? Was it directly af- uh, following your uh, completion of your master's? Yeah, I actually, I finished my master's the first semester I was at at Wyoming. So there was, there was no break between my master's program and the, and the PhD program. I, I was feverishly finishing my, my thesis, my master's thesis for submission that, that fall semester, you know, on top of being completely overwhelmed with uh, starting a PhD program. So that was a, that was a stressful time. Fall of 2013 was, was uh, my hair got pretty long. Beard got pretty thick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's when I met you. And I remember it being like wicked long and I was like, what? <laughs> Um, I guess that leads to the next question. What was your first impression of each of us when you met us at Wyoming? And I know for a fact you remember the first time you met me, (laughs) which was at the Buckhorn, if you remember correctly. (laughs) (laughs) My first impression of each of you, I already knew Connor, so uh, I knew he was just uh, a very polite, uh, industrious young man. And I (laughs) I was very happy to have him at Wyoming coming up from Colorado State. Uh, David, I, I don't, I don't quite remember the night you're talking about. I'm assuming there is, uh, Oh, it was when my I mom did... picked me up from the bar. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. David was visiting the department to, to come and we took him out to the, the buckhorn. I don't know what you thought about the buckhorn, but that's like, it's kind of like the bar you take people that are new to Laramie. It's, you know, the, the epitome of what you think of as like a, Wyoming cowboy bar. And then David's mommy had to come pick him up because he was traveling out to his college visit. <laughs> that was pretty she funny. Free flight, so I went with it. <laughs> Carlton, I don't know what to, I don't know what I thought of you. I, I you're you're both you're you're a mix of thoughtfulness and kind of douchebaggery is uh <laughs> is often confounding to people. But I, I think I, I warmed up to you pretty quickly though, and uh yeah, I ended up really liking all you guys so i met uh, i so at plains this past at plains conference in san antonio this past year i met um cody i don't know his last name um you cody newton i think so and after making like kind of a joke about his firearm incident involving his finger he's like yeah i've heard about you i was like from who he's like oh uh yeah spencer's told me a lot about you i was like oh yeah what does spencer said he's like well, Spencer says that you're really thoughtful and have some great ideas, but you're a fucking frat boy. And I was just like, <laughs> and I was like yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I won't. I think, I'm pretty sure I said that exactly how you stated it, actually. <laughs> Not going to lie, that was my first impression, too. <laughs> I kind of have that effect. So I'm trying to think 
Um, I only spent one uh, session in the field with you during Bob's, the first Om Rock Shelter pre-session with all the graduate students. Yeah. Um, uh, Connor and David, did you guys have any experiences with Spencer in the field? I know, Connor, you, you worked with them on a survey, but like anything specific to Wyoming? Um, me, Spencer, and Crabe, was it Randy and Eric? All we went on the, the Bighorn excavations that first year? <laughs> yeah, we tested some rock shelters up there. Yeah. That was when me and you had like a just straight day of bonding in a cave. That was fun. That was really nice. Yeah. It was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> that was such a serene setting, too. That cave was just so beautiful. I want to go really, film really there really now. Like, I really wish I'd had a camera when I was there. But Yeah. Was that. Uh, the same place that involved uh, Dr. Robinson's Bluetooth debacle. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, that was. <laughs> and he was like, or Spencer was like, "Please, can I just like sync the Bluetooth?" And he's like, "Well, no, it's got. <laughs> That's not Eric's voice at all." But he was like, "It's gonna. You're gonna mess up the, the contacts. I'll, I'll miss Jen's number or Jess's number." And you were like, "That's fine. Just let me sync it." And then Spencer reaches over, <laughs> over the seat to go touch the Bluetooth, and Eric almost like whips the car over on a mountaintop. It was great. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Eric. I found found that bush button to push and had to. <laughs> Had to keep keep going all the way. I loved every second of it. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a. I remember the end of that project being a bit of a debacle as well because the last day the road was frozen. Yeah. But then it thawed throughout the day, and it was almost impossible to get out of that that place. Like we had to get park. a quad to get out of there. I think right. Yeah, that was that was a bit of a. And then we forgot the backfill plastic, and it was just like five things in a row. But yeah, yeah it ended up being all right. It was that was a fun. That was a fun project. Definitely fun week. For sure. Uh, yeah. Spencer, you and I had an, uh, worked together on, uh, oh, what was it? Uh, the Mariah Ranch project. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. yeah. One of the one of the things I remember is that we were, uh, you know, going around surveying. And uh, I think we got into like a rainstorm and ended up like hiding in like a, a little rock shelter kind of thing. And then, at, you know, eventually at the end of the day, we all decided we were, were going back. Um, and one of the students we're with just takes off, just goes like, you guys know Zach Garhart, right? Yeah. yeah. I remember that. Yeah, long legs. Yeah. And he just went and we thought we had lost him. <laughs> he just yeah. That was, I had just come off of like, you know, working the CRM project where, you know, safety was drilled into your head every day and losing people in your crew is like not a big no, no in most contexts. And I was, I was kind of freaked out about that, but yeah, it turned out all right. He's a Wyoming boy. I should have known that he could find his way off a mountain well yeah. enough, but yeah, he like, every it was my first time meeting. He was just like five steps and he was gone. <laughs> yeah. Ridiculous. Dude, Zach Garhart is like a Wyoming Sasquatch from Guernsey working under him at, at the UW field school was just like an enlightening experience. <laughs> that Wyoming man also Sasquatch, like that's, good. that's its own breed for sure. Sub subspecies. Homo Whoa. sapiens garhardensis. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's good. I'm out. So, uh, Spencer, uh, what what kind of led you back going to your like your your dissertation research? Um, what kind of inspired you to choose your dissertation topic or um, take the route you did and write about what you did? A couple things, I guess. I, I knew I, I wanted to do something, some big idea stuff for my dissertation, kind of big scale stuff. 
uh, just because that, that's in my mind, that's your opportunity to do something like that. It's supposed to be the time that you, that you, that you write a big picture thing. You have, you know, you have five, five to 10 years to think about it and write about it. So there's not a whole lot of other opportunities besides a PhD program that you can sit down and write a big idea kind of study. Uh, cool the study, by the way, it's about, it's about thermal regulation. So about the, the impact of temperature on the archeological record, uh, via human behavior. Uh, and the other, the other reason was I kind of gotten into some human behavioral ecology ideas through, through Bob Kelly's work coming into the program. And wait, Bob Kelly does about, human behavioral ecology. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's a, there's a lot of talk about kind of what people eat in human behavioral ecology, but, um, there's not a whole lot of talk about the other thing that you need for survival, which is keeping warm when it's cold and, and keeping cool when it's warm. So I thought that developing some, some theory about, about that topic would be a really useful contribution to, to HBE studies. Yeah. Especially and I think you had told me at one point that you were going to write that dissertation in like the form of like a book for hikers. Is that right? That was one of the dead ends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's a, it's a super relevant topic for anybody that kind of lives outdoors today. So, uh, I, I had a fleeting, a fleeting, idea to like get Patagonia or some outdoor company involved and, and, uh, and kind of try to make some sort of meaningful contribution to, to how they produce their garments and thermoregulation technologies. But yeah, and that never went anywhere. Ultimately you just have to kind of finish the thing and, uh, <laughs> those, those big ideas maybe come later. I remember I, I went to your dissertation defense and cause part of that, your, your dissertation was it was like human global dispersal and how people moved like got out of Africa, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you basically ended it was just like, yeah, it's easy for people to move around the equator because it's easy to be naked and homeless. <laughs> yeah. And that's pretty, <laughs> that's kind of my tongue in cheek way of putting it when I give public talks about it, but it's kind of true. It's, uh, you know, there's certain places in the world that you can be naked and homeless with very little problems and, and other places where it's very much not possible and a whole lot of variation in between though, for, for instance, in, in the United States of America, it's pretty easy to be naked and homeless in Miami and, and, uh, San Diego, which, uh, I'm not saying anything about the cultures of those places, but there's probably more naked and homeless people there than other places in the country because you can do that. Uh, but, but ultimately it has some pretty fundamental implications for, for global human dispersal about where, where you have to invest in kind of clothing and shelters and things like that and where, where you don't have to. And that, that's the gist of, of that argument. And was you worked with Dr. Todd Suravel on his Do, Doha project? Yes. De, you said yeah. that fine. Oh, perfect. Just checking. Um, Cause it's spelled, <laughs> it's spelled super interestingly with it's uh, you know, silent K in there. Todd and, pronounces it some a little differently, but I, I'm not going to try to attempt to mimic it. So. Yeah, fair enough. How were you able to incorporate that research with those uh, reindeer herders into your dissertation? Yeah, I, I was. That, that was one of the really fortunate experiences of my, my PhD uh, was was getting to go with, with Todd over to Mongolia and, and live with these nomadic, semi-nomadic semi reindeer herders for a couple months. Uh, uh, just a very brief synopsis of that project. Todd designed it. It's brilliant research design and it's uh, basically about mapping people in, in mobile campsites. So it's ethnoarchaeology, but you're mapping people instead of trash. So from from those data that Todd had been collecting over multiple seasons, multiple years, I was able to 
make some generalizations about how much time people spent in outside versus inside spaces within mobile camps uh, relative to temperature. So it's pretty, pretty intuitive, but the colder it gets out, the less time you spend outside, uh, the less kind of production tasks you do outside and, and the more you move those things in, into homes. But I was able using, using Todd's data from the, the Doha Ethnoarchaeology Project was to uh, really formalize that and come up with some, some uh, formal parameters around how people do that. So in Todd's program, they do all seasons, right? And you ended up going in the winter. Is that correct? It was, it was really spring. It was early, early spring. So when we went in, there was still a lot of snow on the ground. We got snowed on for probably the first month we were there every day. It was really cold. I mean, it wasn't as cold as when I think when Todd and, and Matt O'Brien went over there in, in uh, late December, early January, it never got above negative 40 or something like something ridiculous like that. <laughs> it was just brutally cold in the middle of winter. The spring was a little more tolerable, but it was it was super snowy. And like so our trip into their spring camp was pretty harrowing multiple day journey over this big snowy mountain pass. Uh yeah, it was, it was fun. Were you skiing behind the the reindeer? Is that what I remember? Were you like No, I was we were I was riding reindeer. Uh we were we did bring skis with us and so we we ended up breaking trail with the skis so that the, the reindeer had a more uh, solid kind of path to walk on because they kept breaking through the snow and getting mired in the snow. So we ended up breaking trail with skis, but we were all we were all riding deer. So I was told that if you put a uh, reindeer with a red nose in front of the rest of them, um, that they all know, <laughs> all know where to go. Is that is that valid? That's that's an absolute truth, Carlton. We uh, they always keep one reindeer with a red nose around, and uh, you you guys weren't forced one. to wear them when you were in front breaking trail. <laughs> no, that would have been a little cruel. <laughs> no, they uh, the reindeer are really good in the snow, right? That's what they're meant for. But um, if you hit the snow just just the wrong time, they kind of uh, the snow doesn't have a hard enough crust on the top, so they end up breaking through anyways. And yeah, they really struggled on our trip into that that camp <laughs> pretty hard. David, you had something to say? Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask uh, nothing about, you know, Rudolph or Christmas, um, but <laughs> uh, did historic reindeer herders in like the, you know, the tiger or the steppe, did they, did they use skis to break trail or was it like a different thing back then? Yeah, they say, they say they did. We actually had a pair of wooden skis in our camp. They were, they were really old. Actually, Todd, Todd, they gave them to Todd because Todd was really wanted them. I think he gave him some money for him, but they're super cool wooden skis that they carved out of a side of a tree. And uh, I remember one real funny moment was we were sitting in our house and they had used these skis as kind of planks in the floor of the house they built for us. And one of the Doha teenagers was sitting there kind of hacking at it with a big knife. And, uh, and Todd was like, stop, don't do that. And he's like, what? They're, they're trash. They're crappy. They don't work anymore. And Todd was like, they're cultural treasures. <laughs> <laughs> Which like, uh, I don't know. I don't think it translated exactly in the Mongolian, but it was a super, super funny moment. <laughs> they're cultural treasures. And they are, they were super neat. I mean, probably some of the last handmade wooden skis uh, around in the taiga. Cool. Uh, well, I guess uh, that'll conclude this section. We can go on to section three uh, or session three. Um, and we talk about your high points and low points of your PhD work and what you're doing now. So I guess we'll get back after the break. 
And welcome back to a Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, still continuing our conversation with Dr. Spencer Pelton. And uh, we're going to conclude this episode by talking with Dr. Pelton about uh, you know his post PhD career and just where he's where he's at now. So uh, so Dr. Pelton, where have you what have you been doing since you got your PhD from uh, the University of Wyoming? Oh, shortly after I got my PhD, I, uh, I got an email from our department from from a company called uh, Transcon Environmental, and they were looking for uh, an archaeologist in Wyoming with a graduate degree that had spent some time doing CRM work, and uh, it sounded a lot like me. So, yeah, but it was signed the the president of the company, um, and I was like, so I was a little suspicious that it was it was real because that never happens. Like presidents of companies don't just send out emails with their personal numbers. To call him, but uh, I'm glad I followed up on it because I did. And I interviewed with them last winter of last year, and I've been working for Transcon now for just about a year. I started Mar- March 8th last year, uh, and it's been it's been a great experience. I've been working uh, primarily on a big infrastructure project between uh, Medicine Bow, Wyoming, and uh, and Rock Springs, Wyoming, big transmission line called the the Gateway West project. Uh, but also, I've been working on some projects throughout the West uh, in Utah. Arizona, we're doing a little bit of stuff in Nevada, as well as a couple other projects in, in Wyoming. It's it's been great. It's uh, uh, I've gotten a whole lot more experience in other aspects of the, the environmental planning process than I thought I thought I would get. So a lot of my days, I'm actually not working on archaeology. I'm working on stuff like raptors and noxious weeds and uh, roads, that kind of stuff. Uh, not not every day, but uh, Oftentimes my, my work is focused on other parts of the environmental planning process. And I actually have really found myself to enjoy it. Um, cool. And dabbling in other sorts of, uh, resources. Now, are you, um, are you pursuing, uh, academic, uh, positions at all? Or are you, or are you pretty firmly happy with your current, uh, position with, uh, that CRM firm? You know, I'm, I'm really happy at, at Transcon Environmental. I, I've applied for a couple academic jobs here and there, uh, but I'm, I'm being very selective about it. Um, I'm doing the extremely controversial thing of not applying for every academic job that's advertised every year. I'm only applying to ones that I would genuinely want and, and want to pursue. Uh, that's really, it's really not what you're supposed to do in this position. A lot of people will tell you, but I ultimately my kind of my quality of life and, and the place I live the people I'm around, uh, I think, matter a little bit more to me than kind of that relentless pursuit of an academic position. So, yeah, I, I'm applying to them here and there, but you know, they don't grow on trees. And there's a huge, oversaturated applicant pool of PhDs trying to land these positions uh, by people that are more talented than me and also a little more driven to pursue an academic path than me. So, um, I'm being pretty pretty selective about ones that I put my name in the hat for. Yeah, fair enough. I remember uh, when when I told you I got into Boulder, you told me to uh, not spend a lot of money on brunch because it racks up quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's and, how I spent ten thousand dollars in Boulder one winter. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I didn't follow that advice to the very to the dismay of my bank account when I first got here. Oh yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> got to have your eggs, Benny, huh? No, no, I need aggressive amounts of a mimosas. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Spencer, you were saying that you're kind of selective about the the jobs that you're looking for in act- academia and probably with a, in CRM as well. What are what is, you know, kind of can you walk us through that process of what, how you kind of figure out 
what school you want to or what job you want to apply for or not? Yeah, sure. You know, it comes down at this point, it comes down to a, a balance between uh, compensation and and personal interest is what it boils down to. Uh, in terms of personal interest, I think the academic jobs that I consider going for are ones that have, uh, you know, a strong uh, research program, uh, programs that uh, don't require you to have an onerous teaching load uh, are really the only ones that I've been considering applying for. I, I love doing research. I mean, that's, that's kind of like why I continued to do a PhD program is so I'd have a chance to do uh, a lot of, a lot of awesome archeological research and, and that's what it provided me. So if, if I'm going to keep doing the academic thing, it really has to be in a research capacity. The other thing that we really have to take into consideration is, is compensation. And a, a lot of starting academic jobs uh, are compensated very poorly for, for the amount of work that you put into it, uh, especially when you start getting into adjunct positions and, and they kind of like dangle the carrot in front of you with like yearly positions, that kind of stuff. Uh, that, those kinds types of routes are just, uh, they're a bit of abusive if, if I'm to be quite honest about it. Uh, the, a lot of academic programs in the country are really living off of this system where they're, they're just keeping people around for as long as they want them and then kind of kicking them to the curb or just living off of adjunct positions. And I, I think that's uh, ultimately a, an unsustainable path for, for higher education. And it's not really one that I wish to endorse in any way. Feel the burn 2020. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point though like a, that's good to see that side of it you know because you're people are usually constantly told like you know keep going get your school get your degree apply for jobs teach and you know it's like it's good to see that you're you're doing well in like a a job that you like and i think you and hallie have a house now and everything like yeah it's it's good yeah to see. it's ultimately i mean a lot of people and it, to, it's it's no slight of their their path but a lot of people they want, they have nothing else in their mind but an academic job. But there's a lot of ways to make a living in archaeology, and and a lot of them are extremely satisfying ways to make a living. And and I dare say maybe a little less anxiety inducing than an academic path. Even though academia yeah. is a super fun, super fun career, you get the summers off. You kind of have a pretty pretty uh, wide breadth of intellectual freedom in most positions, ideally. Well, there's other, there's a lot of other paths and I've, I've found my one for the last year to be really fulfilling and, and it's set me up to have a pretty stable life. Yeah. Like you said, own a house and a truck, uh, got married. Now we have, you know, time and money to do vacations and, and do fun stuff. So, yeah. uh, you know, it has, it has its perks for sure. <laughs> I like that aspect a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess let's see, like, do, do you, I guess to, to continue on that, do you feel like fulfilled in your career? Like, do you feel fulfillment? For sure. Yeah. And I, but like I said earlier, a lot of it comes from being able to pursue some things that have really put me out of my comfort zone and, and really out of my core skill set. So for instance, doing marketing uh, to like telecom companies or energy companies or um, uh, writing proposals for, for bids. Uh, all these are things that I've, I've never really had to do. And I think a lot of academics never have to do, but they're extremely valuable job skills in the vast majority of the world. Uh, just being able to you know, enter a room and, and talk to people and try to sell your, your product to them, basically. Uh, that, that's one thing that I've actually found myself enjoying a lot more than I thought I would. 
when I started with this company. And, and also, like I said, getting involved with other resources and other aspects of the environmental planning process and kind of seeing how, you know, archaeology is one small part of this much larger process. Uh, it's been a really interesting and engaging thing for, for me to deal with. Uh, and that's, that's really what keeps me interested in the job. Ultimately, I think, I mean, I, I like doing the archeology span as well, obviously. Uh, I don't think, I don't think many archeologists that have had a foot in both the academic realm and the CRM realm would tell you that CRM archeology span is quite as exciting as, as say digging at Alm rock shelter, you know, at, at a rock, in a rock shelter with 11,000 years of prehistory stacked on top of each other with twine and, and, you know, perishable artifacts and all sorts of cool tools and stuff. So it's just the reality of that. I, I would suggest if, if you do go into CRM, it's, it's nice to kind of keep, keep a foot in some other realms of it as well, like, to keep you engaged and make sure you don't burn out. Um, because, you know, right, writing up fire cracked rock scatter number 570 is never anybody's like ideal way to, to be engaged with archaeology. Yeah. But you still get to, uh, through your, your current profession, I mean, you're still doing research projects like on the side, correct? Yeah. Uh, nights and weekends, <laughs> I'm still, still pretty engaged with several research projects. Uh, and, and, and honestly, I wake up some days and think I have more time to do that in, in the private sector than I would if I was in a, in a academic job with a heavy teaching load. That's, probably a little optimistic because uh, you no know, teachers have the summers off, but yeah, I, I've been able to maintain projects at the sister Hill paleo Indian site, which is a, a great uh, now stratified paleo Indian site of my Buffalo, Wyoming. Uh, I've managed to, to create a pretty interesting marriage of my personal academic projects and the CRM world at the powers Two site. So where we've, we've worked out a way for the, uh, the Wyoming abandoned mine lands program to, to put some money into stabilizing this, this paleo Indian ochre quarry. And I, I'd been working on that site for a couple of years prior. And, and now we're at, we've actually got some state money involved to help stabilize this really remarkable site. So yeah, I, that's definitely kept my interest in archeology span uh, stimulating in a big way. And I, at this point I'm on papers, I'm, I'm kind of the guy that, comes in and like writes the background section or something. And people will ask me to kind of edit stuff and, and formulate arguments and stuff like that. So I've been able to keep engaged with, with uh, research in some pretty meaningful ways. Yeah. I mean, I know um, I saw you over the summer when I was field directing at Hellgap, um, like the project that you and uh, Dr. Frizen were running at powers. And it was just like amazing that you were able to run that. And then, you know, you'd work during the day and then you'd, you'd help advise for this site. And it was just, it was, it was, it was very impressive. Um, the way that you were able to do that. <laughs> that wasn't an ideal setup sitting in my, in my pickup truck with a laptop filling out site forms for a, a fiber optic project while also trying to keep the total station running at powers two basically. But yeah, th this year will be different. Cause we do, like I said, we, we've got a, Powers Two is my day job now. In some capacity, we have funding to to go out there and, and do work work on it. So I, I've been able to work out a way to kind of marry those two, uh, the two aspects, but the two hats, I guess my my academic hat and my my CRM hat. Yeah, fair enough. And maybe when you're done with Powers, you can go over to Hell Gap and help complete the excavation that you had me start this past summer. <laughs> Our little. Uh, our little shovel skim operation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The one that revealed uh, like over 700 artifacts from that little, from that little unit. Yeah. <laughs> Coming down at the SAAs. 
Yeah, the one that I'm presenting at the SAAs on that at a poster really session. So if you there. want to know more about that debacle and how I almost got <laughs> shot in the back of the head by Dr. Marcel Kornfeld from excavating outside of locality one, stop on by. <laughs> well, it was worth it. <laughs> I, I just I just remember because you're just because because Chris Rowe found that point that shouldn't have been there. And you were just like, hey, man, it'd be good science if we got a uh, shovel test in there to see what the soil looks like. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And then 700 artifacts later, you're like, yeah, man, there's uh, definitely something interesting here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going back to powers later. And I was just like, what the fuck? Yeah, it took took five years of a PhD to tell you, uh, yes, seven hundred artifacts out of a little shovel scrape of a cut bank was interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. <laughs> oh, yeah, Gaslight's got some more secrets, man. Yeah, I've only been there <laughs> once. It was a really cool site from what I saw. Yeah. Um. So I guess what leads to our next question is like we're all anthropologists, and we went to arguably one of the best. <laughs> the best anthropology programs in the country and we might be a little biased but i mean we learned for field we learned from like a couple of the best archaeologists that i've ever met what are your opinions on the field of anthropology and like what, what's the future of it in like you know american national discourse you might regret asking this question david <laughs> <laughs> i regret a lot of things but <laughs> let's see I mean, I, I think that American political discourse has been heavily influenced at the moment by certain branches of anthropology uh, and not not in a hugely positive way. I think that anthropology is largely culpable for creating uh, the acceptance of relativistic thought, which is both a really good thing, but also something that was weaponized by the Trump administration during the last election. And, uh, you know, facts are your they're like your opinions, man. And uh, <laughs> I think that anthropology should take a little, a uh, little bit of the blame for for creating such an acceptance of, of uh, I guess relativistic thought and, and something that's, that's really been kind of weaponized. Other, other than that, though, I mean, I ultimately I think anthropology is hugely important for for furthering human understanding in, in the world, and uh, it's something that I still feel really strongly about in terms of archaeology, particularly. I uh, I, I'm still a little skeptical that we can kind of take lessons from the past and, and, and hold them to have any sort of direct relevance to today's problems or the problems of the future. I, I do think, though, that yeah, just really simply archaeology inspires uh, joy and awe in people. And, and that's something that should be considered valuable un, unto itself, in my mind. Uh, not just, not just uh, new discoveries or new pretty things, but you know, some of the patterns and that that archaeologists have been able to pull out of out of the record of and, and how societies form and change through time and collapse. All those things are extremely engaging aspects of our field and uh, things that we we should capitalize on to keep justifying our relevance as a, as a discipline in national discourse. Yeah, I guess to to ask one more question on that, which I just thought of, um, you and I, and I guess Connor and Carlton also are pretty evolutionary minded people from our schooling. Uh, what do you think the, this might be a deep question, but like you said, archeology span kind of inspires awe in people and like wonder, do you, what do you think that has to do with like, like the human like species, you know? Hmm. Well, I, I think that since we're very uh, 
enthralled by the human past, I would imagine that humans in the human past were also enthralled by their own human past. (laughs) I think there's something pretty fundamental in in the human brain that really, uh, you know, that we we obviously have a sense of time and we obviously uh, have had it for a really long time. So I I would imagine that, uh, you know, upper Paleolithic foragers of of Northern Eurasia had the same sense of awe about their own past and and found things from their ancestors and cave paintings and weird looking stone tools and weird looking bones and and also had a a comparable sense of awe. So I guess, I guess in the largest sense that, that, that sense of uh, joy and, and awe of the past is probably a pretty universal human trait and something that we we can think of as, as, uh, a unifying character of, of the human, of human nature. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. I think the uh, Venus figurines and the recent Roman uh, graffiti found on Hadrian's wall is a testament to uh, humans oh per- perpetu- <laughs> per- perpetuity towards. Uh, uh, <laughs> you care to make that when you're not at work version of that now? <laughs> oh, well, well, thanks Spencer um, for being on, on this podcast. I from all of us, you know, we really had a lovely time chatting with yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Those are uh, good questions. Yeah, made me, made me think about some stuff I hadn't thought about in a while. So appreciate you guys taking some time to sit down with me. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think this is a perfect opportunity for uh, uh, for us to kind of show what this podcast is about. We really wanted someone distinguished that we, you know, and someone that we kind of know pretty well uh, in an academic context on here to uh, just kind of give us, I mean, you've had a really interesting career and definitely, I mean, the amount of publications you've, you've authored and co-authored is just amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Like the fact that like, yeah, uh, the academic job market, uh, I'm trying, I'm actually, uh, you know, I have my uh, PhD calls due on Monday and I'm doing this instead. So, uh, you know, that's where I'm at. Well, thanks. Thanks for uh, taking some time out to do it. That's uh, that's quite a big sacrifice you're making there. I'd get back to the books. I know. I know. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, all of our listeners, uh, for this first episode of the Life in Ruins podcast. And uh, thank you, Dr. Pelton, for uh, being our, uh, our first guest. So with that, um, we will see you guys all uh, in another episode. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. You want to try that one more time? Yeah, I sound like an asshole. (laughs) (laughs)